everyone, and welcome to episode 98 of Positive Progression, a motorsports analytics podcast. I'm Alan Cavana, joined as always by David Smith. On this episode, we explore the idea of being fast, but being winless. Should we praise the good or criticize the bad? We go in-depth on a listener question on Kyle Larson's late race speed or lack thereof, plus our big Richmond preview that includes the prospect of long green flag runs. But first, as always, this is episode 98 of Positive Regression. This is the Marvin Panch edition. David, a name I know, but I'm not exactly sure why I know. One of racing's early pioneers. Essentially, he was a California guy, right? Which was a bit odd back then in the early 50s when he started in the Southern Racing Series of NASCAR. But Marvin Panch had 17 cup victories, including a Daytona 500. Six of those victories came in a lovely number eight car. David, what should we know about Marvin? Well, there is a lot that we should know. Uh, Seven of those 17 race wins came in his age 39 and age 40 seasons. Wow. So that kind of hits what uh, we like to talk about on Positive Regression. He, You're right. He did win a Daytona 500. I know specifically without looking it up, he won the 1961 Daytona 500, and I will explain why later. But – when I think of Marvin Panch, uh, I don't think of Hall of Fame talent. I don't think of a guy who drove uh, for the Wood Brothers and for Petty Enterprises and for Smokey Eunuch. I think about kind of a – I don't know. Maybe maybe this isn't the right way to put it, but kind of a, a Forrest Gumpian career in NASCAR. He is the subject of several odd stories. Uh, we spoke about, uh, one back on episode 55. Marvin Panch was pulled from his experimental Maserati car in a Daytona crash by Tiny Lund. Oh. And, and he yeah, pulled to safety and, uh, Marvin Panch requested that the Wood Brothers put Tiny Lund in the car for the Daytona 500. Tiny Lund went out and won it. We explained that in full back on episode 55. Um, but the 1966 World 600 at Charlotte, he was driving for Petty Enterprises, the number 42, the team car to Richard Petty's number 43. Early in the race, Richard Petty goes out with an engine problem. Panch, uh, was, uh, was driving. He was feeling some pain, said it was an old racing injury, uh, that he had sustained years prior. He elected to get out of the car. Richard Petty got in the car and proceeded to win the race. Wow. And the win went to Panch per NASCAR rules. So, the, I mean, between that and the tiny Lund thing, like, it, he he was this – 17 wins is nothing to shake a stick at. He was, a at his time, a consummate race winner. But the things that he's known for are – just these oddball stories that came about during his career. And I mentioned the 1961 Daytona 500. I am uh, a former resident of the Daytona Beach area. Marvin Panch lived in the Daytona Beach area until his death in 2015. And for a long time, there was a local restaurant, uh, sort of a, a lazy beach grill on the pier, uh, that kind of vibe, that advertised on local TV legends 
are here. And it showed Marvin Panch eating chicken wings and waving to the camera. Um, <laughs> enough, enough people must have been confused as to who this, uh, this old man was. So finally the advertisement changed where there were now words underneath it that said Marvin Panch 1961 Daytona 500 winner. Uh, that was added under that commercial was on TV in the Daytona area for a while. Like I memorized it. And that's why I know that Panch was the victor of the 1961 Daytona 500. Good stuff. That is a hell of a backstory and something I did not know about Marvin Panch. Uh, I love how you brought up a Forrest Gumpian, right? If you, you know, doing a little research and even it's cited on his Wikipedia page that in terms of when he first got in the car, David, it was because uh, I guess his driver didn't show up once. He was a car owner out in Oakland, California. His driver didn't show up. So Marvin Panch got in, went out there and finished third. And that, that started into a whole prospect of a hell of a career, apparently, because uh, Bill France called him out. Back to the East Coast, and that's what started uh, some of his NASCAR career, at least the most successful part. So uh, a pretty good name to know and, and a hell of a backstory. Good job. Yeah, good pick for episode 98. Yeah, a lot to unpack there for for Marvin. But uh, again, a 17-time race winner at the Cup Series level. Uh, that's something that probably should be applauded more so than anything else that happened, which was a lot. Episode 98, the Marvin Panch edition of Positive Regression. When your business is starting its championship run, nothing matters more than finding and hiring the best team. With Indeed, you have the power to build a dynasty by hiring more MVPs faster. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through March 31st. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applicants that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. No matter how the last game went, anytime you take the field, you got a shot at greatness. Give your team the best shot at winning by recruiting more MVPs with Indeed. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, let's get this started, David, because uh, we finally had a repeat winner in the NASCAR Cup Series last week at Martinsville. Uh, so we're seven for eight. But still, there are a lot of big-name drivers, a lot of successful drivers, that do not have a win yet but are still doing good. For example, Penske once again dominated that Martinsville race. Ryan Blaney nearly made the damn thing boring at first, right? And then it was uh, unfortunate circumstances in the pits that took away any chance he had. So Penske once again dominates Martinsville, does not win. Think about Denny Hamlin, one of the few drivers in history with seven top five finishes out of the first eight races. It is a very short list. My man Rusty Wallace is on that list. Never mind. Uh, but Denny Hamlin is on it. But no wins amongst those seven top fives he already has. So, David, we got to talking. What is the correct thing to do here? Should we be praising them for their good performances? Denny Hamlin, the point leader. Denny Hamlin, all these good performances. Or should we really be looking at the fact that they have not won yet? How do you want to start this conversation? Because in modern-day NASCAR, it really does matter which side we go on. Yeah, and and it can expand, you know, especially for Denny Hamlin, 
he hasn't won a race this year while having uh, a good car and having a good season statistically. He hasn't won a championship. Uh, the, he, there's there's that nugget. I mean, there there were a lot of drivers that we can say that about. And the goal of auto racing, like the entire point of it, is to be in the highest position possible at the completion of the final lap. So inherently, if you are not in first place at the end of a race, there was something wrong, a flaw, a deficiency, something went bad. But, you know, for these two instances, Blaney and Hamlin at Martinsville, that doesn't mean that most things didn't go according to plan, right? So first place has been elusive for them. And for the most part, that specific result is elusive to anyone. And I've thought long and hard about the result, and I'm kind of putting that in in air quotes, and the result's perception on how we view anything, uh, racing, sports, life. And I find that there is just little control over a result itself. Mark Martin uh, uh, famous for, for winning a lot of races and winning no cup series championships, uh, said this, and I was in middle school. I was shadowing with MRN at the time when he said this, uh, Mark Martin had won the Bush clash and he was asked in the press box whether he would feel unfulfilled if he never won a Daytona 500. And He said, no, you cannot control the outcome. You can only control your effort. And to that effect, the effort we've seen from Penske, specifically with Blaney, I mean, at this point, he seems to be the the team's uncrowned Martinsville bellwether. But we've, we've talked about the effort before with Penske on 750 tracks. We understand what they're doing. And statistically, they are doing it very well. It just sometimes doesn't manifest on one particular day. And for Hamlin, like Mark Martin, not yet a champion, he might never be, uh, and he's not a winner in 2021. But if you were going to pinpoint any race team this year that appears best suited for all the challenges that are being thrown on the Cup Series this year, uh, including the ones that matter most for the playoffs and the championship, then the number 11 team of Denny Hamlin and Chris Gabehart are very much in that conversation. Maybe Martin Truex is too, but Truex has two wins on the two tracks that probably impact the title race most, but Hamlin isn't bad. Uh, he ranks first in production and equal equipment rating through the first eight races. His team ranks as the fastest in the series, both overall and on 750 tracks. And him being winless should change Nothing about his stature. Similarly, uh, knowing what we know and after seeing what we saw, and, and you feel free to challenge me on this, if we were racing again at Martinsville this coming weekend, I would still pick Ryan Blaney just like I did last week, and Denny Hamlin would clearly be someone to watch. Neither of them won that race. Nothing what I saw changes what I feel about them going forward. So while a result has to exist, uh, namely the first place results. And, you know, NASCAR, its fans, the sport in general values 
a driver who beats 39 other drivers, far greater than a driver who only beats 38 other drivers, I think the win, the result, whatever you want to call it, clouds a lot of perception, and sometimes that is just unfair. Yes, and but unfair, but it also leads to a championship maybe, right? Because, th- th- look, and this is what I've got from listening to you and, and reading your work and doing this podcast with you, David. You taught me, right? I've, I've learned and adjusted my view on winning only because winning is hard. And what we do here is judge performance and skill. And every week there's only one winner. And if there's one winner, does that mean everyone else sucks? Of course not. So that we, you know, we analyze performance here and improvement, what's going on throughout the field and a driver's skill and what they contribute. But being great, that that's not enough for a championship anymore. That's what makes this conversation why we're even having it because only winning, David, only winning brings you a championship, winning at the right time in that one race. But you have to win. Being great is not good enough. You have to win. Does that change your mind on anything in terms of what needs to be done or your perception of a driver who is winless yet maybe at the top of their game? Well, you say being great isn't good enough. I would almost argue sort of with the construct that NASCAR has thrown at us with the playoff format, being great might not matter. And that's where the conversation kind of veers into another direction, right? Like if if you had unlimited resources, unlimited time, unlimited research and development efforts, and you knew that this was the schedule, you knew which tracks were the most important, how would you allocate all of that? Would you go all in on Phoenix and Martinsville? Because if that's the case, Martin Truex is clearly a front runner, even though he wasn't especially great in the entirety of those two races. It took a lot of work. To, to make that car as fast as it was at the end of a race. And that's, there's just, it's not guaranteed that that happens all the time. I do wonder if results and by association statistics, they are pragmatic goals, but I, I do wonder just based on a lot of things, wins are hard and this playoff format is tricky. There are many hurdles. It knocks people out even though you could argue maybe it shouldn't. Maybe we should allow Kevin Harvick to have mulligans and make it to a championship race, or at least allow him to compete for a championship based on the area at Briar. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what the correct answer is on that. But just in terms of how we analyze and what we think about drivers and teams purely on performance, should we be more romantic about racing? Should we prefer quality or a sense of adventure over results. I mean, I think that's your- what this podcast helps do. I mean, if I'm, if you want yeah. me to chime in quick, you know what I mean? I mean, no, I just think that, uh, I think I've learned to appreciate the quality of drivers who, because again, there's only one winner. So it's not like I've learned to analyze the entire field and appreciate Eric Jones's passing, even though he might be in a slow car, you know what I mean? Or in a slower car. So I think that's one thing this, this, uh, podcast has helped do is appreciate and shine a spotlight on the quality that is still there, even if you are not winning. Couldn't agree more. And I, I, I pulled, um, I pulled some quotes, uh, for you. I, I'm going to introduce you to, uh, a soccer coach that, uh, that you've probably never heard of. And in fact, ESPN called him perhaps the most influential coach people have never heard of. Cool. His name is Juanma Leo. 
He is a Spanish football coach, and that is soccer for those of us in the States. And as a head coach, he hasn't had much outright success. Um, but that's also because he didn't coach some of the, the big money clubs in Europe. Um, that's kind of the thing. Parody, not really big in world football. But he happened to be the final coach for a player named Pep Guardiola, who went on to become arguably the best most decorated coach in the world right now for Manchester City. And Pep recently hired Juan Malio as his men, uh, his mentor to become his top assistant. So he learned a lot underneath him. And now he has Leo at Manchester City spreading his philosophy to more players. And that philosophy is that he does not particularly care about results. He cares about quality. And the takeaway here is that if his players perform beautifully and execute to the letter, thanks to his coaching and his data, he is a big data guy, the quality will then be good. And therefore, that is how the performance should be judged and not by the final score, which kind of like Mark Martin, uh, he says, depends on way more factors than the ones he can instill in his players. And I said I have a quote. I'll read it for you here. This is from uh, The Blizzard, which is a long-form soccer magazine. I highly recommend if you're into soccer. The objective is the journey, the process, the work matters. In a race, you can be first, miles ahead of anyone else, and then meters from the line fall over. And are you going to write that race off? No, you ran brilliantly. And he went on to say that you can't validate the process through the results. Human beings tend to venerate what finished well and not what was done well. We attack what ended up badly, not what was done badly. And if if I may, Alan, for me personally, the longer I've done this, and that's, you know, be a statistical analyst out in the public sphere – I think I've become more romantic than pragmatic, even though, you know, people think of statisticians as pragmatic. I think what you said holds a lot of water. The the numbers that we're not really seeing when we watch uh racing on the uh on the, the Fox or NBC telecast because it's tough to cover, um, those underlying numbers. This is why advanced statistics matters. I would say more to NASCAR than any other American sport is because we're not catching a lot of the action on our TV screens. And I think that these advanced stats have allowed me to understand first and then to appreciate what drivers do well, uh, regardless of whether it ends in a good result. I'm definitely a championship agnostic when it comes to Xfinity and trucks. And I, honestly, I'm kind of getting there with the Cup Series. I'm personally at the point where I'm far more interested in how teams and drivers grapple with one race. I want to know the logic behind everything, what they're doing, uh, whether it yields good or bad outcomes, how drivers perform for that one race. And when that race is over, I'm ready to begin anew the next weekend. Uh, the playoffs, the championship, Every point standings format we've ever had is a construct. We're told that it's important and there are playoff implications, but in the process of a race itself, I think that if we are leaning towards that narrative and that perception and away from considering whether teams are executing either very well 
or you brought up Eric Jones, well relative to their team's budget or their running whereabouts, will miss out on a lot of good and will miss out on human beings achieving what they set out to do, which was to be quality. You know, we don't say practice makes winners. We say practice makes perfect. And so that's the aspiration that folks are trying to achieve. And for those that come very close to it, they're deserving of our appreciation because what we're seeing, the kind of performances, especially at Martinsville between Blaney and Hamlin, were microcosms of uh, a years-long effort on Penske's part and a, a heck of a year to this point for, for Hamlin. And they came away with nothing except maybe the appreciation and hopefully some admiration for at least a, a job well done, even though if that job didn't yield the intended result. Well said. And to that point, I would say get to a racetrack and, uh, cause again, you know, I can't blame TV. It's how I make a living, <laughs> but, uh, they can, they can only show so many races at once, if you will, uh, so many aspects of a race at once, but, uh, go to a racetrack and watch yourself and, and you will appreciate some of the skill going on. But most of you, I hope already know that, but get, get out there anyway. Short track, big track, wherever you want. Uh, good stuff. Good conversation. Good, good, good talk because there's a lot of talent out there, obviously, performing very well right now. And, uh, if we look at them differently without that checkered flag, as maybe we should, as we talked about championship wise, but there's a lot of good stuff going on. So, uh, we'll press forward. I'm sure they will both have checkered goal. Well, I'm sure Daniel will get a checkered flag, uh, sooner rather than later. Next up, David, a question from a motorsports analytics patron, Nick Fish. I'll hear from him a lot on Twitter and obviously as a patron of motorsports analytics. So thank you so much, Nick. But he asked a great question, David. Are my eyes lying to me or does it seem that Kyle Larson is getting worse at the end of races? The last three races we had without incident, he seemed to fade fast. Any insight there? David, you are the man to ask. So let, let's look at pure, I guess, chart-wise. Uh, anything you can, anything you can indicate that would maybe uh, mirror what Nick is seeing, or what what, what do you see on the charts? Uh, chart-wise, his median lap time rank for each of these uh, the three races without incident, uh, which I, I took to mean Phoenix, Atlanta, and Martinsville, were fifth, first, and fourth. Okay. His median ranks specifically across the final stages for those races were fourth, second, and sixth. So two instances in which, yes, the final stages were slower for him than the race as a whole, meaning the first two stages were faster. Uh, Atlanta were sort of aware of, of, uh, what went down by now. Uh, I did look at his final green flag run at Martinsville, uh, which was, uh, what, 44 laps and some change. He ranked sixth in that as well. So, yes, there was some fading, though uh, uh, probably more in track position than in lap time, which, yeah, in some instances, he's seen his final stage be his worst stage. That, that's not what you want to hear if you're a racer, right? I mean, because that's when you're trying to, uh, make everything as, uh, as perfect as possible at the right time, right? Timing is everything. So you'd rather be, have your fastest stage, I would think, be the final one, uh, so you can get to the checkered flag. So do you think that's something that's correctable or is that, I mean, stage points are still a thing. So is there, 
I don't know if intentional is the word, David, but, you know, setting your car up to get those first two stage wins, perform as good as possible, and then see what happens after that. Uh, is there something that can change within a team, or do you have to pick one or the other? Um, you know, I don't know if you, if you have to pick one or the other. I, can Can something change? Yes, certainly, right? But I don't know how easy it's going to be because whenever there is a gap like that between final stage speed and overall race speed, it tells us a story. It tells us that other teams at some point in the race got faster, and it might actually be the other teams either underachieving or finding a balance on top of their initial setup that might have been better in the first place. So... Hopefully this makes sense. Larson's opponents could have had more wiggle room to grow their speed during the race. Uh, and for instance, uh, one of the drivers faster than Kyle Larson in the final green flag run at Martinsville was Kevin Harvick. And we know he didn't have competitive speed early in the race. Harvick probably had a setup that was good, but not much balance. And they found that balance between adjustments over the course of, yeah, how many cautions were there? 15? God, it, too many. And that last, felt like, it felt like 30. <laughs> but so, yeah, so he, he took, he took advantage of that time between all of those. He had, he had more room to improve. And it's possible the four team had a better car all along than the five team. We just didn't see it until the closing laps. And yeah, I don't know if intentional is the right word, but, Larson being good at everything in his career, both short runs and restarts and long runs and passing, he's kind of a driver around whom you can build any kind of car. Short run, long run, it doesn't matter. And it's possible that Cliff Daniels and Hendrick Motorsports want to optimize for short runs. They certainly did at Homestead because we, we, we were told that we've learned that they might have done this at Atlanta, though to be fair, that car was pretty close to perfect. And frankly, they shouldn't be criticized if that's what they tried to do at Martinsville because we saw a bevy of good short run cars. Denny Hamlin was one of them, but while there were a lot of cautions, none of them came in that final 40 lap stretch. And that is going to be something that does ultimately end up biting Kyle Larson, uh, regardless of how good he was earlier in the race. Yeah. And that's a question. I mean, as the season goes on, I mean, does this become a problem for Larson or any driver who quote unquote fades, you know, at the end? I think we've talked about this before. I mean, a few years ago when Kyle Busch was struggling, he was fading at the end of the race, right? He wasn't getting better or wasn't as fast as he was in the beginning of the races. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't, if you look at, I don't know if the charts reflect it, but I just think of, uh, Truex's two wins this year, David. Uh, you know, he took the lead. He said like the opposite problem, right? He took the lead at lap 220 of Phoenix. He took the lead for the first time in Martinsville lap 455, right? And, uh, so that's getting better at the end of the race, which obviously seems like you want to do. So is this a problem if a driver appears to be fading at the end? I think, oh, I, you, so the, the the Kyle Busch thing, his championship season, that we've talked about, that was maybe the beginning of the, of the bad times for Kyle Busch and Adam Stevens. And one of the reasons why it was so bad is because that driver-crew chief relationship had been together for so long. And if they have no ability to communicate and make a car go faster 
by the end of the race or they're just getting passed by slower cars that are now becoming faster, that is a problem. I'm a little bit more bullish on what's happening with Larson because this is all new. And considering this team wasn't particularly fast at all across the whole of last year with Jimmy Johnson, I think it's okay to establish good speed and then get choosy about how you deploy it. Uh, it's the second fastest car in the series right now is what we're talking about. And that does typically bring good things, but this is completely new territory for Cliff Daniels. He's not even three years into a job as a Cup Series crew chief. It's new for Larson. It's the fastest car he's ever had in his Cup Series career. And I think it's okay to assume that driver and crew chief are on the same page, but they're still likely building a familiarity and a feedback loop that would allow them to sustain this kind of speed for an entire race. So the short of it is, I think it takes time. All right, we'll see what he can do this weekend in Richmond. And that leads us to our Richmond preview, David, because it's yet another short track, second one in a row. It is a 750 horsepower track, which is vital toward winning a championship, especially as we look at the end of the season with Martinsville and Phoenix, the 750 horsepower uh, tracks as well. So, David, now that we've had some under our belt and we're going to another one in Richmond, let's review some of the 750 horsepower speed charts. Uh, who's got the speed and who doesn't? Now, if I had to guess, right, I mean, we've thrown so many accolades at the Penske cars recently for their 750 speed, but you un- inadvertently maybe revealed a little bit of a surprise earlier in, just in this episode, David. Denny Hamlin has the fastest 750 horsepower car, which is a bit of a surprise if you know anything about what they had last year, Gibbs, I'm talking about. How is this for a top nine ranking? Gibbs, Gibbs, Penske, Penske, Hendrick, Gibbs, Hendrick, Hendrick, Penske. Diverse. (laughs) (laughs) Great answer. Uh, I I don't think I'm surprised by any of that. I, I think, I think there is one surprise in there is that William Byron ranks as the best Hendrick car. I think you, you, we might have thought that Chase Elliott, who ranked first in this category last year, might take that. There's still time for that to occur. Um, but yeah, not a ton of parody among organizations. The, the, the three kind of have a, have a lock. Uh, Kevin Harvick is the top ranked driver outside of that trio of, of organizations. He ranks 10th, which is a drop from fifth last year. And two to certainly take notice of are the Chip Ganassi cars. Kurt Busch right now has the 22nd fastest car on 750 ovals per average median lap. Ross Chastain ranks 25th. So not a good time right now for Chip Ganassi racing. Okay, so that is surprising, both the good and the bad, I guess. So, uh, yeah, I mean, Penske cars have improved. I mean, Penske cars, we know where they are, but the Gibbs cars have improved over last year. So maybe there was some homework being done there in the offseason. Uh, speaking about Richmond specifically, David, tire wear affecting pit strategy in this race, a short track. We might see the green flag pit cycles. So how does tire wear at Richmond, from what we've seen in the past, how may that affect pit strategy this upcoming weekend? Ooh, yeah, good question. Okay, so yeah, last year's only Richmond race saw no cautions outside of the stage breaks and the competition yellow. And in the aftermath, you heard folks like Clint Boyer complain about a lack of accidents or something. The race got a really strange reaction 
from a lot of folks on social media because it was comprised of long runs. And I, I've, I've rewatched that race recently. It was not for a lack of aggression. This was a playoff race, but this is a slightly bigger, uh, it's, it's three quarter miles bigger than a traditional short track. So the field spreads out a little bit more and Frankly, it's the cup series. I mean, these guys are supposed to race cleanly and at least mistake free. So yeah, it's entirely possible that we see something like this again. So let's talk about it. Let's prepare for it. Tire wear makes this, I think, an interesting race, especially with green flag pit cycles. The fall off on worn tires is about a second and a half. And we saw this specifically with race winner Brad Keselowski last fall. Uh, he was uh, running 24.8s prior to uh, his green flag stops, 23.3s after the stop. So getting on rubber early matters. But we saw something else last year, and this is more prevalent in IndyCar road course races, but choosing two stops over one across the length of that final stage Keselowski did this. Austin Dillon did this. We, when we think of that team as, as uh, smart with strategy, and our listeners might be, you know, asking why. Because the less time on you spend on pit road, the more time you're on the racetrack and turning laps. That should be better. But the answer is that multiple stops across a long run gives you in pockets a much faster race car. You are on fresher rubber than those who chose to pit once. One of them in the Richmond Fall Race last year was Kurt Busch. He moved from ninth to first in that final pit cycle. Hooray! That's a big deal. Big positional bounty for Matt McCall. But that lack of speed at the end of the race did him in. And he ended up dropping from first all the way to 13th. Races won't always break like that one did last fall. But if it does, there is an advantage to uh, taking advantage of that kind of tire wear and picking two over one in one of those 2v1 scenarios. And that was on display in this race last season. Could be interesting. Could be something to watch this weekend. All right, we'll be watching that. And David, we already mentioned all the cautions last week in Martinsville. Uh, I bet you were busy uh, calculating restart numbers and all that stuff. So uh, I appreciate you uh, all the work you had to do there in that last stage. So this week, in the instance that there are cautions and many of them, how will restarts matter at Richmond? They will skew towards the leader. That's what they'll do. Uh, In theory, that should always be the case. To the leader should go the spoils. No matter but, which lane you mean, or how do you mean? Well, it's an extreme case at Richmond, uh, or it has been over the last three races. Uh, that, and I'll, I'll note that that span encompasses two different downforce packages, but an easy common denominator is that the leader, 16 times out of 16, picked the inside groove on the restart. 15 of those were successfully defended. The outlier was Austin Dillon. I'll let our listeners make whatever observation about that they want. But P1 with a 94% retention rate inside line row one, 
Um, that is pretty strong. I mean, we, we, we just left a track where the leader can dictate a lot and we're going to a track where the leader can dictate a lot. Um, all of those retention rates, by the way, are posted on motorsportsanalytics.com. If you're a patron at the Johnny Benson level, look those up, but I will add to that this nugget during last weekend's chat during the Martinsville race on the motorsports analytics discord server. I mentioned that restarts at Martinsville. I'm going to be careful. I'm not going to call them not important, but the gain loss on average for each spot was minimal and relative to other tracks, especially in this era, that is sort of rare. And the track that mimics Martinsville is Richmond. There were two restart spots over the last three races at Richmond, the outside of row five and the outside of row six that averaged a clean gain loss of zero. And we don't see that often. It's visible twice at Richmond. So certainly a bad restart could lose you this race, but the gain is a low ceiling. There's not going to be much position shifting going on. The focus lately at Richmond, we've talked about in the past, is mechanical grip for long runs, and there's a good reason for that. That is the clearest pathway to victory above all other paths. All right, so we've covered who's fast, we've covered pitch strategy, we've covered restarts. David, I'll let you go first. Who are our picks to win Richmond? Go first. I I do have an answer, but I want to ask you a question first. Oh, goody. I'm not going to say it's wide open because that has a very different meaning, but does this race and this track lack an obvious best performer? Like when you think of Richmond, what driver pops into your mind? Denny Hamlin. Okay. Why? Uh, maybe because he's close by. I don't know. <laughs> he's a Virginia boy and, uh, he's won there before. Uh, Brad Kislowski would also come to mind because of his recent success there and how fast he is. Uh, Kyle Bush taking out Dale Jr. I think of and his victories there, but I, I get where you're going, I think, or, uh, but there's not, going? there's not a, like a signature dominant driver. I mean, mm-hmm. Hamlin is the, is probably the closest best shout. He's a three time winner. Yep. But those were many rule packages, many different car iterations ago, different pavement on Richmond. Hasn't won since 2015. Uh, he is going to be my pick this weekend because yes, I do, I, I do want to practice what I preach, uh, earlier in the episode. Uh, he is of the highest quality across all tracks heading into this race. And when a track doesn't have, you know, a signature obvious performer, this is kind of my fallback, right? His surplus passing value on 750 tracks is frankly bad right now, but he has the fastest car. And that is a distinction that can mask any kind of deficiency. I think his biggest competition this weekend comes from inside his own house at JGR, Martin Truex. Uh, Truex has a little less speed, much better passing, but his, his two wins, you just mentioned it required some setup adjustment. They were not on the nose, those wins. Uh, it took James Small working wonders during the race and that is incredibly hard to duplicate. Uh, I mean, that's it, hard to just expect or ask for every single weekend. And they are doing that. Meanwhile, 
Hamlin and Gabehart are unloading very well, uh, very fast for what is uh, proven to be the, the best race long speed in the series. And I think eventually, if you bring that kind of quality every weekend, you will hit. What about, I'm just throwing this out there. How about a Denny Hamlin signature win in terms of bumping someone out of the way, bumping a teammate out of the way? You know what I mean? Why don't we get one of those? Get us something to talk about, David. Give something, give, uh, give Joe Gibbs something to do on Monday. Sure. I mean, no, I mean, we just seen, we've seen Denny in position to win the dirt race and kind of regretting not giving Joey Logano the bumper when could have just run right through him and then kind of getting beat right at the end of Martinsville. And, uh, you know, it's a short track. You never know what could happen at those tracks. So we're going to another short track. Why, why not? Uh, let's get a signature win out of Denny Hamlin. That'd be pretty fun if we're both right. Cause he was my pick to win as well. Uh, I saw your speed charts, David. I was surprised at the 750 uh, speed, especially again, given what Joe Gibbs racing did last year. And if you're around there long enough, Denny Hamlin having the best year without victory so far. But if you're around there long enough, you figure with Denny Hamlin's skill, you, you, you put yourself in position to win. And I think it can happen this weekend at Richmond. So. Uh, we, I'm, I'm glad we're thinking the same. I, we picked last, this is two weeks in a row because I was so happy when you and I picked the same last week and we damn near had it in the first two stages. So we'll see what happens in Richmond. Uh, that, that's our pick to win. How about our contrarian performers? Again, David, I'll let you go first. Who is your contrarian performer at Richmond? Easy choice, Christopher Bell. Oh, yes. All right. I'm doing something right. Go on. <laughs> We've duplicated both. Three of his 16 career Xfinity Series victories came at Richmond. And last year, his only Cup Series start at Richmond, uh, 15th for Levine Family Racing. And I do fancy his passing ability. Uh, his plus 6.76% SPV at Martinsville was his best single race showing of the year since his win on the Daytona road course. And Richmond is a bit more forgiving to young former USAC racers uh, than Martinsville certainly is. He is among that top nine that I rattled off early for 750 speed. And uh, yeah, I just think this is a slam dunk pick. I think he will do very well for himself at Richmond. Yeah, I can't add much more to that other than, yeah, seventh place last week, uh, playing with house money in terms of a win. And David, I, I don't know, I forgot. I mean, Kyle Bush is Kyle Bush and he's had awesome years. Uh, he swept Richmond just a few years ago. And, and who was his crew chief? Adam Stevens. Adam Stevens, the current crew chief for Christopher Bell. So all these things just added up in my mind. Yes, I believe Christopher Bell is a contrarian performer, not just to perform, but hell, could go out there and win the thing. Yeah, we are going heavy on Joe Gibbs Racing this weekend, sounds like. Yeah, so almost guaranteeing a Team Penske victory. We'll see what happens now. But All right, good episode, David. Don't forget, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Luminary, TuneIn, and YouTube. We're available no matter your device. Our entire back catalog of episodes is available for free at posrecpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. That helps spread the word so much. We, of course, notice it is so appreciated. If you have questions, we would love to hear them. We did it just in this episode. Reach out to us on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, you're always working hard. What are you working on this week? This week, the first production in equal equipment ratings will post to motorsportsanalytics.com for the NASCAR Cup Series. As I mentioned, Denny Hamlin uh, with the best peer of the lot so far. So be sure to check uh, uh, check out the rest of the list. 
And on NBC Sports, I'm going to write about Ryan Blaney, specifically his evolution from the driver he was in his rookie season to the driver he is right now. It is a statistical analysis that I believe will help you appreciate his growth as a driver in the Cup Series. He is certainly doing something right. Uh, make sure you keep track of my social channels at Alan Kavana for the latest going on. Make sure you watch and set your lineup for Sunday afternoon's race at Richmond. Watch Fantasy Live over at NASCAR.com. Uh, some of the knowledge from this podcast will be uh, go into my fantasy picks, David, even though we have added a new addition to the Fantasy Live show, the bingo ball machine, because at, at one point we just weren't making enough good picks, so we're just going to let a bingo ball uh, make the picks for us and see if it can do better. And it's just an entertaining aspect to that show. So make sure you watch Fantasy Live. And David, next week before our new episode comes out, so I'll plug it now, uh, I'm going to make my debut doing some work for Speed Sport, the, uh, the, the vaunted, um, uh, and long time historical publication and now obviously website, uh, that covers everything. And all, everything in racing, in all forms of it, we're doing some work for them, previewing upcoming weekends at a track near you. So make sure you look for that on my uh, on my social channels. It's fun to be a part of the Speed Sport team. So looking forward to that. And, uh, yeah, make sure you just uh, have a great weekend, watch a lot of racing. And for David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. Thank you for listening to Positive Regression. We'll see you next week. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.